0: Welcome to Bookends, a virtual book club brought to you by The Team Approach. I'm your host, Susan Stam, and we are continuing our discussion on the topic of leadership today with my guest, Kevin Cashman. Kevin is the author of the best-selling classic, Leadership from the Inside Out, which is available in a second, revised, and expanded edition. To get a copy of Leadership from the Inside Out, visit the publisher's website, bkconnection.com. You can access today's podcast and all of our programs at bookendsbookclub.net, where you will find free chapters and other resources provided by our guests on our resource blog. Kevin Cashman, welcome to Bookends.
1: Well, Susan, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: Leadership from the inside out is a model of seven different kinds of mastery. And you present this model in a circular way, giving equal priority to all seven areas. The first area that you talk about in the book is the area of personal mastery. And you open this chapter with a a great story about a priest and a soldier that I would love to have you share. Would you also share with us how the story
1: positions our need for personal mastery? Absolutely, I'd be happy to. Uh, Personal mastery is really about uh, self-awareness and authenticity. It's really about understanding ourselves, what's important, what our strengths and development areas are, and then going forward with our life with, with more purpose and impact. Uh, the story that you're asking about is actually a, a story of a priest who's um, walking through uh, pre-revolutionary Russia, and he's walking down a country road, and, and uh, a soldier confronts him very abruptly and sternly and puts his rifle out and stops the priest and says, you know, who are you? Where are you going? And why are you going there? Now, the priest, in a very calm, uh, centered way, steps back and, and thinks for a minute and then responds to the soldier and says, how much do they pay you every month? And the soldier is taken aback and a little bit uh, irritated by this, and then, but responds and he says, well, they, they pay me 50 kopecks a month. And then the priest uh, reflects a little more and says, well, I would pay you a 100 kopecks a month if you would stop me once a month and ask me those same three questions. <laughs> Who are you? Where are you going? And why are you going there? So personal mastery is really about uh, asking ourselves the, the important questions about ourselves, our strengths, and and where we're headed in order to um, increase our effectiveness.
0: That's great. I just love that story. What a great way to open open up the book. You you write on page 37, authentic people, people on the path to personal mastery, value all of who they are. And you also quote Deepak Chopra, who said, "To be authentic, you have to be." everything that you are, omitting nothing. This seems to be a really big idea. And it uh, seems like we would uh, know and be very clear about our belief system. You suggest that our being aware of our beliefs is a way to to get to this end. Um, But as I was reading your book, Kevin, I have to admit that I realized I have a lot of uh, clarification that I need to do to really get real clear on, on my own beliefs. Would you tell us why this is so very important and how we can get more tuned in to our own belief systems?
1: Well, first of all, authenticity is a big subject, and um, you know there's many dimensions of it. And um, m- many people will say, "Well, kill me, I'm an, I'm authentic. This is who I am." Mm -hmm. But uh, authenticity is much more than that because we're all authentic to our current state of development, whatever that might be, but we're all also inauthentic to our potential state of development. And it's in that tension between authentically who we are and authentically who we could become that all of our growth takes place. Now, one of the moderators in moving from who we are to what we could become has to do with belief systems. Uh, belief systems are, are literally the software of leadership, meaning our beliefs are always opening up or closing down possibilities for ourselves and, and other people. So we have to know what our software is, what are these systems of thought, these things we're telling ourselves about ourselves and about others and about situations that either limit possibilities for us and others or open them up. For instance, if we have an opening belief system, for instance, trust is an opening belief system, Uh, sometimes we're proven wrong and we have to, you know, restrict ourselves and others and so on, but overall, if we show up in relationships trusting ourselves, trusting others and looking for the best possibility, it'll open up more possibilities, whereas distrust in some situations is very appropriate and very prudent, but if it becomes our operating software, it tends to shut us down and shut others down from connection and possibility. So spending time to get clear about what are those operating belief systems and having the self-awareness at any moment to know, does this belief system right now support us and support others to create more value or is it inappropriately limiting us and therefore have to be aware that that software is running and overcome it in order to create more value?
0: That's great. And, and, um, you know, I'd be curious as you've worked with people, um, you know, how oftentimes are you finding that people have really Great clarity around this area, or is, you know, does there tend to be some fuzziness? And then in the book, you you share some clues on how we can uncover uh, both our what you call refer to as both our conscious and our shadow beliefs. Perhaps you could talk about those as well.
1: Yeah, and it's you know conscious beliefs and shadow beliefs are really conscious. Beliefs are the beliefs we're aware of, and we would say we're aware of, and they open up possibilities for others. Whereas shadow beliefs are more the limiting beliefs that tend to be operating and we're not aware of, and just unconsciously, you know, drive us. Now, a lot of people will say um, that overdeveloped, you know, strengths are what are counterproductive. I would say it's a little bit different than that. When we take a strength, and we combine it with a shadow belief, it becomes counterproductive. Right. For instance, we might have a strength around conscientiousness, and we tend to do things well, and we tend to do, do things on time. Now, if we have a shadow belief that says everything has to be perfect all of the time, then that is fuel to that strength that often creates counterproductive behaviors and rigid behaviors and high standards that maybe we and others cannot live up to. So, developing an awareness about what are these beliefs that really serve us that we can be conscious of or they're counterproductive and what are the beliefs that are running unconsciously that tend to be counterproductive is a big part of developing uh, self-awareness.
0: That's great. You mentioned a little earlier that there's a number of different um, things that we need to consider and work on to obtain personal mastery. And another dynamic that you talk about in, in the book is the, what you call the character coping dynamic that ties into this. Um, could you talk a little bit about how this particular dynamic influences leadership?
1: Well, it really, character and coping is, is really an awareness building technique to know at any moment of leadership where is our leadership coming from? And this is crucial to leaders because as leaders we get habituated to the external world. We get habituated to achieving and doing more and more and we get rewarded for that. And on one level, that's very justifiable. Leaders have to produce results. But when we get so externalized, we very rarely ask ourselves, where is our leadership coming from? And is it coming from a place that can get short-term results but lacks sustainability? Or is it coming from a place that uh, gets results but in a sustainable way for us and others? And character, what we've found over the years, is a way to produce results that ener- energizes both sides of the equation. It serves us and it serves others, and therefore it tends to be sustained over the long run. Whereas coping, tends to be more of a survival mechanism, tends to be more about self-preservation versus others. And as a result, it'll quote, work in the short term through a crisis, but it's very difficult to maintain you know, over the long run. For instance, uh, a very common coping behavior for us as leaders is, is fear of failure. Mm-hmm. and and this this coping mechanism can drive a lot of results and a lot of achievement because we always feel that edge to perform more and do more and so on but it can become counterproductive when it tends to drive people to the point that they're not getting acknowledgement they're not getting you know sufficient recovery time they're not getting enough creative time and and, and so on so our fear of failure the is a coping mechanism that tends to be counterproductive over time A character trait um, is something like courage. You know, courage is something that when we show up with courage, uh, courage is not the absence of fear, it actually may be the presence of fear, but we rise above it to serve what's really important and typically serve others in, in a very important situation. So character tends you know, um, in most cases, even though there may be some self sacrifice in the long run, that serves us and serves others to do what's really important. So the book goes through all sorts of character attributes and grounds us in when do we know we're in character? How do we know mentally? How do we know with our belief systems? How do we know physically what, what character, you know, feels like? And then how do we know when we're in our particular coping mechanism, which is different for all of us, and how, how do we know that mentally, our belief systems, and actually physically, so that in any moment in time we can discern where is my leadership coming from now, and, and is it something that's going to serve myself and others over the long run? It's a great way to think
0: about how we're acting, this whole question that you use frequently in the book of where is my leadership coming from, and I I, uh, found that to be extremely helpful. I'd like to, to talk for a little bit about purpose mastery, another of the uh, seven kinds of mastery discussed in the book, and you suggest that we need to explore and clarify our core values to obtain this kind of mastery. Do you find that most leaders that you coach are really clear about their values, and how do you help them bring these into focus?
1: Well, clarity around values is, um, is something that's a lot tougher to practice than it sounds. Uh, because with most leaders we coach, uh, if you ask them what's most important to them, what do they value the most, on kind of a superficial level, they can rattle off you know, the kind of socially acceptable values. That, mm-hmm. You know, I'm committed to my family, I'm committed to my spiritual life, I'm you know, committed to um, my team and organization, say. And on a superficial level, it's very easy to, to rattle those off. But when you really challenge someone and say, well, you say these things are most important to you, where do you put your time? Then suddenly people go, well, I say my family and spiritual life is the most important thing, but it's where I put the least amount of time, maybe relative to career and, and, and other pursuits. And then suddenly people experience that dissonance and they have to reconcile, what is that all about? Do I need to reprioritize my values? Do I need to reprioritize my time? And then we get on the journey of really sorting out you know, what we're authentically all about. So the, now the way we help people get to this is by reflecting on you know, what have been the, the key peak experiences in their life, both pro- professional and, and personal, and then what have been not only the peaks but the valleys. You know, when have been those tough times and so on. And, and during those times, you know, what was present? Where did we live what was important to us? Where did we not live it? And use that reflection to, to get clear about what those values are. Because as a leader, um, we have to know in our hearts and in our guts what's really important to us. Uh, because people will sense. If the leader really knows that or not, and if the leader really knows that, they know what their life has taught them about what's really important and meaningful, people attach to those leaders. It's not so much what the values are, but their authenticity and alignment with them you know creates an attraction and a realness that we know they're about that, you know we want to attach you know to those principles. And, and then the voice of the leader and the attachment to other people is very strong because those values are clear.
0: So to go back to what you said a, a little bit earlier about uh, people being able to rattle off a list of socially acceptable values, it's not so much that people feel like they have a set of values that are socially acceptable, it's really more about coming into alignment and being authentic to the values that you really embrace. Is that correct?
1: Yes, uh, that's correct. And also doing, you know, sufficient inquiry and reflection about our life to know, you know, what has our life taught us Mm -hmm. that we know for sure is important? What have the traumas of our life taught us that when we lose something that's precious like that, we really know that we don't want to lose it again? And we don't want others to lose it. So we, we understand you know, the, the losses of our life and, and the things that are precious as a result. We also have to reflect about our privileges. you know, What have been, when we really step back, don't take our privileges as a norm and then just expect everyone else to have them, but really understand where have we been privileged and objectively understanding that and understanding that maybe most people in the world don't have that, and then suddenly it becomes precious, and then that privilege is something we want more and more people to have access to. So really looking, what have been those lessons that we know for sure? Because until we do that, we're mouthing the words Mm -hmm. of systemic values, values we've read about, Values we've been told are important and our voice doesn't have much power. So we have to know what our life has taught us And then stand for that. Yeah,
0: this seemed to be a a really um, big area of the book for me as well And it seemed as though um, You know this could really take a great great deal of time and thought uh, to really um, kind of look backwards at your life and and be more conscious as you are living your life, to really find these areas that, um, you know, really, really surface, and you really, really know, well, that that's it right there. Is that, that, is that your
1: that's experience? That's correct. That's correct, because, you know, in the book, um, we talk a lot about, you know, how we need to grow as a whole person to grow as a whole leader, mm-hmm. and and that pursuit of leadership development is unending, meaning if, in business, oftentimes, you know, we'll accept the fact that there's no end to possibility in terms of achievement for the organization and development of the organization. We accept that on an external basis. Sometimes what we don't challenge ourselves is, is to is our unending a, a, a need to grow and develop throughout our lives. Mm-hmm. So, you know, reading a book like this or other books that are impactful In in reality, it's the beginning of the journey. We get insights, we put a plan together, but the real measure of the impact of leading from the inside out is do we stick with it through the course of our life and continue to build our capacity as a person and leader to face all of the changes and challenges that will come to us in organizational leadership but also in personal leadership.
0: Well, in, in finding our core purpose, and we're talking about the, the, uh, the mastery of purpose right now, you've suggested that our lack of clarity also stem from our childhoods uh, in the way that we kind of been, have been programmed to think about careers. What's wrong with the way a lot of us approach this? And um, perhaps you have some examples you might share with people who have gotten this right.
1: Well, it's it's, it's a big area because it um, it's kind of an indictment of, you know, our educational system probably primarily, but, but, but other systems as well. We tend to focus um, on, you know, what to be in our society in, instead of how to be. You know, we focus on, you know, career instead of character as a result. Uh, we tend to focus on what to do in, in, in our career and vocational lives instead of what do we love, right? And that, that can be a transformative thing in terms of, you know, guiding us to, to good career choices. And we tend to focus on, you know, um, how careers serve us and our success, particularly early in our career development, instead of you know, how to really serve others and what's the, the biggest impact we can have on other people's lives. So a shift to how to be in terms of character, a shift in terms of what we really love and, and, and gives us passion, and then a shift towards significance in terms of how to impact other people's lives, you know, would, would be a major shift. And and it's one of the reasons for years I've I've been part of a group called Youth Frontiers, which takes about 120,000 um, um, students every year through a whole character development process to supplement what's happening in, in, in their current education. So sure. I think a shift along those lines um, would, would be really significant. It wouldn't change anything in the current educational system. It would just move people to discover deeper levels of character, deeper levels of their passion, and deeper levels of, uh, of service. Um I I remember working with um with a marketing executive in a in a large fortune uh, 100 company years ago and um and she had just gotten, you know, feedback on uh, performance feedback and she was upset about it but we were laughing about it too um you know her performance feedback said um you know, Judy, I'm really concerned about your knowledge of mashed potatoes, right? <laughs> and, and, and she went, I'm really concerned with this feedback, but it just seems like it's kind of missing the point here. You know, it's my <laughs> life is the culmination of my life, you know, my expertise about mashed potatoes. So we had to help her, you know, really figure out, well, what is it about? You know, yeah. what is your passion and so on? And what is the thing that... Maybe is not showing up now in terms of your purpose that makes somebody be critical about you know your expertise. Hmm. And it turns out what she'd gotten disconnected from was her creativity and innovation. That's what she was all about, hmm. and she had lost track of that and needed to get reconnected to that 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 purpose and. You know, maybe she needed to brush up on her knowledge of mashed potatoes, too. But the main thing was how is she showing up in terms of her creativity and innovation and bringing that forward um, on the job but also in all parts of her life. So getting clear on what is that core contribution, that intersection of our talents and values where our strengths show up in the service of something that's really important. Uh, and when we get clear on that, you know, great things can start to happen.
0: That's great. You offer us a clue to help us understand the difference between purpose and obsession. You talk about energy a bit in the book, and I was wondering if you would um, share this with us. How how does this help us get some clues into whether or not we're really acting from a place of purpose or a place of obsession?
1: Yeah, it's a crucial question because, um, you know, it's, It's, on the one hand, you can get really passionate about something, but ultimately, we have to ask ourselves, is this serving, is this passion uh, not just serving us, but serving a broad range of constituencies? Because when purpose becomes focused on self and our success, our recognition, our adulation, In distinction, then it can easily move into obsession. It's self-focused then. But when purpose serves, when our talents and values are touching people and energizing broad groups of constituents, and not just one constituency, but broad groups, that will be an indication that it's coming closer to purpose. So the fulcrum has to be with how self-focused or other-focused um, is our contribution and passion. And because ultimately the, the journey of leadership is the journey from I to we. Mm-hmm. And, and if it stays in the I, it can be very self-obsessed and it can be very dangerous to lots of people. Um, and I have lots of stories about that. Yeah. Um, and our society and financial system has huge stories about what happens To our whole society when a few people get very self-focused in terms of their success. It's Mm -hmm. devastating to the broader society, but when people are in leadership positions and their passion serves, touches broad groups of people, then we could say it's, you know, more purposeful versus obsessive. Yeah,
0: seems like a, a just a really good Uh, tool to use on a regular basis in the midst of the work that we all do is just to stop and ask ourselves that question. You know, where is my focus? Is my focus on on me or is my focus on others? Uh, It's it's a powerful but simple tool.
1: And it is and, you know, it also has to be somewhat balanced, right? Because Mm -hmm. if it's all on others and not on ourselves, then it becomes codependent and it can't be sustained. If it's all on ourselves and not on others, then it's narcissistic and it's very dangerous. So, you know, typically the evolution is from the I to the we, but then has to relatively balance those so that it is serving ourselves, but not an exclusion. It's serving ourselves and others uh, simultaneously.
0: Great. Well, we're talking today of course about becoming more and to encourage others to continue to become who they can become would you share the story of your visit to the tibetan monastery um that you share in the book i just love the story and i think it might uh, be inspirational for folks hearing
1: it well it was um i have to say it was a personally shocking um thing, (laughs) thing that happened i and, and it was unusual. I was I was in Europe and at a in a beautiful location on a lake in the mountains and so on. And I was coming up to the third day of a team building and leadership team building and leadership session with a senior team. And the CEO um, before the third day said, "Why don't we hike up the mountain here? And I hear there's this Tibetan monastery up the hill. And why don't we go there and meditate and." get our heads clear before we go into the final commitments about strategy and where we're going to go forward so i thought fantastic you know i didn't even come up with the idea the ceo came up with it okay i'm 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 for this this sounds great but most of the group was going oh my god meditation <laughs> uh, get up early the next day and hike <laughs> up the mountain. you know they really didn't want to do it but they also didn't want to say anything to the CEO so they kind of just grumbled to themselves so we did get up early the next day we hiked up you know the mountain and here is this monastery and it was an unusual situation because it's in Europe yet it's a Tibetan monastery mm-hmm. and there's a Tibetan monk you know standing out front with you know saffron robes they just like out of a movie set Wow and um, he greets us in a German accent which you know even added to the kind of you know there's nothing kind of fits here atmosphere and and we go in and we all sit in the meditation hall with pillows and so on and more grumbling you know people oh god you know and then I'm a willing student so I go up to the front and I sit in the front and and then um, the monk comes in doesn't say anything uh, must sense that I'm a willing student or something because he sits down and he looks right at me and he says how many days do you have left to live? Now, at that moment, you know, I'm used to being the coach and, you know, having <laughs> some good questions. And now, here, here is like the ultimate or almost the ultimate question that just like uh-huh. pours a hole through me, uh-huh. and I don't even know what to think here. I'm so surprised, and it's such a profound question. But then somehow... I had the answer. I don't know if it was fast mental processing or whatever, but he asked the question. I had the answer. So I said 6,000 days. Mm -hmm. Now when I said that, it seemed like he took forever to kind of process my response, and he's sitting and thinking, thinking, thinking. And then finally he turns back to me and he says, that's about right. And then my brain kicks in, and I'm going, what do you mean that's about right? You know, <laughs> what, do you know, what do you know that I don't know? And you know, I don't even know where that answer came from. And by the way, how many years is it? And my brain's kicking in, uh-huh. right? And so he, you know, we sometimes talk about questions as the language of, of coaching, right? And mm-hmm. he the uh, ultimate question. So I go back to facilitating the group. And, you know, we're talking about strategy and commitments, but my brain is thinking about 6,000 days, right? How am I going to use those days? How you don't want to waste a day? Right. And on and on and on. So for me, that was, a, and that was about 1,000 days ago, too, which even gets edgier as I go along here. But, um, you know, to me, it was a great example of asking ourselves profound questions to stop in our tracks. Look at ourselves, look at what we're doing, look at it from a vantage point of purpose and significance, and how to make you know every day of you know personal and organizational leadership really count
0: wow well, such a great, great story. I just love that.
1: I can imagine how it must have felt in the moment though.
0: Um, well, it's
1: also making me, you know, after a thousand days, I'm going, well, maybe we had it wrong. Maybe it was ten thousand.
0: Right? <laughs> yeah, I so, think I miscalculated. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's do that again.
1: So I think oh, my, my denial my. is kicking in, but mm-hmm. you know, I I think um, I think I'll have to stick to the six thousand days though.
0: So. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Well, moving along into the next mastery discussed in the book, Interpersonal Mastery, you cite some interesting research from the Saratoga Institute. In their research, they interviewed 19,700 exiting employees and their bosses. How about sharing the results of this research with us and tell us what you feel contributes to the great disparity of views uh, between the the employees and their bosses?
1: Yes. Um... With that study from Saratoga, they found that when they did exit interviews with bosses after key people had left their organization, 85% of the bosses said, oh, they left for a better opportunity. But then they went and interviewed those people who actually left and said, why did you leave? And 80% of them said they left because of a poor boss. Hmm. Now, what this this The implications of this are profound for us as leaders. first of all, we have to realize that um, how we show up as a leader might as well be the whole culture to our team and to our employees and um, and we have a huge impact it's not just you know the opportunity and everything else it's how are we coaching are we developing are we listening are we're really there and advocating for our people or not. If we're not, then when people leave, they're probably leaving more often because of us or the lack of something we did versus the presence of something that we did. So it really illustrates the power that leaders have to create a culture. And a lot of other research has supported this too, that the number one reason people stay or leave an organization is the relationship with the boss. And um, the number one thing is, is the boss really you know, advocating for me, uh, pressing me in my development, uh, coaching, and so on? So to me, that's the key learning. Are we, every day, attending to the development um, and growth of our people or not? Yeah,
0: certainly has been a key theme that has surfaced again and again on on this program. We did an entire year uh, featuring authors of um, uh, books written about employee engagement, and that relationship seemed to be the theme that we heard repeated again and again and again. Um, I I love- And
1: and also, we just, um, um, you know, we do a lot of research on leadership, and one of the things is what we've learned from 360 assessments, is in 360 assessments when people rank, you know, is this characteristic important and then how well does the person Mm -hmm. do it, Um, what we find is that consistently people in 360s rank uh, coaching and the development of people as one of the top competencies that's required. But it's consistently ranked as the lowest lowest competency. So we we know it has an impact with us, we know it's important in leadership, but um, few of us really practice it. So I think Saratoga's research and our research really validates the same thing. And as you say, it's the core of real empowerment.
0: Mm-hmm. And and what we find, and, and I completely agree with what you've just shared there, um, what we find is that we get a lot of pushback from people in management and leadership roles because, in a sense, they're working as individual contributors themselves, but they have this extra layer. Um, you know, there used to be a time, we all remember it, you know, a few years ago when people really were just managers. Yes. <laughs> and And now, of course, you know, everyone has, their, um, you know, the technical uh, competencies, the requirements of task work that they're responsible for as well. And, And people continue to tell us that they don't have time to do that. I'm not sure that I totally buy into that or believe it. Is that what you find as well?
1: Yeah. Usually people will say, you know, coaching, oh my goodness, I have to sit down for an hour and coach someone around a development need or something along those lines. And usually, You know, the the time objection will be there for two reasons. One is we really don't know how to coach, Mm -hmm. so it's kind of mysterious, and therefore it takes a lot of time, and and therefore we avoid it. So we have to know the methodology of coaching to get into it quickly and directly, so that's lacking. Uh, The other thing is sometimes uh, coaching is just giving feedback about what's going well. A, you know, appreciative feedback. and sometimes that takes a few seconds, and it energizes someone you know, so completely that they go home and they say, "Let me tell you what happened today." You know, my boss said this and acknowledged my background and so on." So it, um, it's more. Do we know how to do it, and do we know how to give um, appreciative feedback, and do we know how to give caring, direct feedback? that um, really relates to somebody's development. So becoming a student of coaching and then um, suddenly it takes the mystery out of it and it doesn't take a lot of time.
0: And, and preparation, certainly, and, and yes. you know, organizations um, need to make sure people, as you say, are prepared and have the skills to do that, very important. Uh, in the section of the of the book on change mastery, you write, and I found this, to be a fascinating statement. You write that in the course of one year, 98% of our atoms are exchanged for new ones. We literally are new people each year. It's really interesting. We're changing all the time, of course, and with change comes new growth and and many, many benefits. Yet you point out that so many of us fear change. This came up a little earlier. Um, You talked about this uh, just a little, uh, the fact that that fear is a big part of, um, of many of us, even people in leadership roles. Why do we fear change, and what can we do?
1: Well, I mean, um, you know, first of all, you know, as we know, kind of the nature of things is change, right? Not, nothing is, is constant, and maybe the only constant is change. Mm-hmm. Um, yet, you know, change is a... Scary thing to, to most of us, you know. For instance, um when we're we're at real change, not just little incremental change, but real change in our lives, we're about to lose something that's very dear and familiar to us, but we don't know what is the upside of what we're gonna get yet. And at that that intersection of we know we're gonna lose something familiar. We hope we're going to gain something else, but it's not here yet. That's the moment of 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 fear, and that's the moment where you know what we go back to is ourselves, and our belief system, our character. uh, What do we know um, about ourselves in situations like this in the past, and have we overcome or not? and then we begin all of our reactive or proactive relationships with change. So, I mean, change is, um, it's scary, um, whether it's personal or professional, but it's also the moment of ultimate practice, the moment where our character and values either come into play and bridge us into the future or move us into coping, as we were talking about earlier, an attempt to hold on and it's usually futile, you know, mm-hmm. attempt to hold on to the current state, which is impossible, because if the nature of life has changed, we can't right. hold on yeah. to the current state. There's no change uh, choice. And all of our suffering comes from holding on to what is instead of going to what's possible. And that's the evolution of really moving from management to leadership. Because management attempts to um, increase efficiency and control in the present, mm-hmm. which is ultimately impossible because the present will change. And leadership is about you know, going beyond the present to, to, to what's possible and that uh, uh, we have to be more grounded in ourselves and what we're all about to, to make that leap.
0: That's great. You um, you also share a sad commentary on the success of change initiatives, both on organizational and individual levels. And uh, I was wondering if you'd be willing to share the numbers with us. Tell us what makes it work when it is successful.
1: Well, yeah, m- most change uh, initiatives don't work. Whether it's um, smoking cessation programs or it's organizational change program, the statistics are about the same. Seventy-five percent of the time, they don't work. Um, now, you could say that's sad, and I guess it is. Uh, but you could also go, okay, twenty-five percent work.
0: You know, <laughs> right. <laughs> Let's what, focus on that. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Why do they work? You know, why do certain ones work? And and you know, we've seen a few things that, if are present, you know, change initiatives, whether they're personal or organizational, t- tend to work. One is, you know, reframing the situation from, you know, problems to cope with to opportunities to learn. So that reframe from problem to opportunity can be very helpful. Another change shift is moving from short term to long term, um, because until we do that, we don't really see the compelling future that is worth you know, all the sacrifice and discipline that might be required to get from the short term to the long term. So really having vision and purpose uh, uh, about the long term is crucial. Um, you know, moving from focus on the immediate circumstance to what's the bigger purpose. You know, what's really at stake here? What are we going to get if we move forward? What are we going to lose if we don't? Most people, we tend not to really look at the current situation and going, I am going to lose this for sure, it's happening now, but what could I get? And that creative tension is is, is crucial to navigating change. Moving from trying to control everything to moving towards um, the agility and particularly learning agility. What can I learn from this situation versus control? How is this pressing me in new and different ways that you know, it could be helpful for the, for the future. The other one is moving from self to service. We talked about that already. And then the last one is moving from doubt to trust, because at those moments of change, we're doubting ourselves, we're doubting it's gonna work and so on, but can we step back to go, if I trusted myself more, what's possible? If I trusted others more, what's possible? And that can shift us through change as well. The book deals with those change shifts in more depth, but um, usually what, um, what people need to do is go, which ones you know, uh-huh. could I actually practice? And then in those change situations, where, where do I tend not to shift? And then uh, attempt to shift ourselves a bit in those situations to engage change more.
0: Yeah, I found those to be extremely helpful and uh, worthy of at least a full day of retreat time. (laughs) So thank you for those. Um, I have to admit that I hated to be laughing so much towards the end of the book when you share a kind of a serious story about a father named David who had some issues in in the area that you call resiliency, um, which is the next uh, mastery in your book, uh, I would love to hear you tell this story and um explain if this dad is the exception or is he um you know is he the rule
1: well what maybe i'll share what happened first and then and then comment on it the what the situation was is like a lot of us in you know senior roles and so on, we travel a lot and we travel internationally and you know his um You know, his son was young, and and, um, I think at the time he was, like, you know, four years old, four or five years old. And and his father was traveling extensively, maybe three weeks at a time, coming home and so on. And during one, I think, probably very crucial period for his son, uh, he pulls up and he goes into the garage, and uh, the garage door is closed, and he's unpacking his bags. And his son hears something in the garage, steps into the garage, and then goes running and screaming back into the house because he he thinks there's an intruder in the house (laughs) because he's unaccustomed to his father being around, and it uh, it doesn't connect for him. And then at that point, you know, our client David, that was a wake up call to him. (laughs) Oh my God, my own son doesn't you know is a